Hi everyone, this is Yin, and welcome to Growth and Failure. This show highlights extraordinary people that inspire and motivate me to level up. I'll have conversations with a wide range of profiles from entrepreneurs and athletes, investors to educators, you name it. I love hearing people's different journeys. For me, the biggest lessons learned and opportunities to grow come from the struggle, the pain, the defeat. And I hope hearing these stories inspire you to not fear that messy middle or failure, but rather motivates you to reflect, to keep learning, and ultimately to keep growing. For more information, please visit growthandfailure.com for more updates. And please write a review if you can. They really do help other people find this show. Thanks for listening. This is the story of Jess Ryan, award-winning creator and CEO of All Together Now. I wish I could bottle up Jess's enthusiasm and positivity for the arts and also for life. Instead, I'll just re-listen to this interview when I need a dose of positive energy. In this episode, we discuss Jess's journey from Kansas City, where she started off as a dancer and unbeknownst to her was the worst dancer in her group, to performing on Broadway and now creating award-winning content at the intersection of technology and live experiences. One fun fact I learned from Jess that I'm pretty obsessed with now is how an audience's heartbeat syncs up during live Broadway performances. I just love that so much. And we talk about how Jess tries to recreate this connection and engagement for virtual audiences, which we all know during COVID was a tough task, but her wealth of creative experience and her strategies bridges that gap so beautifully. It's clear that her passion and skill set is to grow things, to grow audiences, to grow engagement, to grow connections. The thing I'm most inspired with Jess is her comfortability and confidence in herself to create her own path where there is no right or wrong path. There is no map for everybody, but to follow what you want to do. And as she says, she's ruthlessly and recklessly herself. Please enjoy this conversation with the energizing Jess Ryan. Hi, Jessica. Welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. I am so excited to talk with you. I am so excited. And first, I want to thank the amazing founder of Sambivant, Amanda McCrossin, for connecting us. I think she's one of the best filters I know, both in wine recommendations, but also in people. And whenever she says, Yin, you need to speak to someone, I'm like, okay. And I drop everything. And every suggestion she's had so far with restaurants, wine, and people have met my very, very high expectations. So thank you, Amanda. That's amazing. Yes. Super shout out to Amanda. I love having friends like that, don't you? I just had someone text me because I introduced someone to another person and he was like, I feel like you only know amazing people. My call was so good. And I was like, that is the best compliment. It really is. I mean, I'd love for that third party praise always. Yep. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so the listeners would have heard a summary of your background and it's just amazing and inspires me in terms of what you're doing and just you as a person. But before we talk about your amazing work at the intersection of technology and the arts and live entertainment, can we rewind your long highlight reel and talk more about where you grew up first? Because I know my listeners like to hear the background stories in childhood. Yeah, absolutely. I like to say sometimes I'm a recovering polite Midwestern gal. I grew up in Kansas City, Missouri. There's two Kansas cities, one in Kansas, one in Missouri. I'm from the right one, the correct <laughs> one, <laughs> Missouri. And most of my family is from Missouri quite a ways back. So my parents were both raised in Kansas City as well and met each other when they were quite young. And they were both working at Marion Laboratories, which 
was founded by Ewing Kaufman. And you're probably familiar with the Kaufman Foundation, right? So that's his foundation that he started. My dad was one of his early employees, which was really cool. And so was my mom, technically. And that's how they met, which is really nice. Really neat. And so I know your background started, at least professionally, on the dance side. How did that start? I started dance class at three at Monica Renwick's School of Dance. Monica was really interesting. She had been a professional dancer in LA and New York. She was in like Pennies from Heaven and a bunch of the 80s stuff that had come out. And then she moved back to Kansas City and started this dance studio. And I didn't find out until not very long ago, right before my last parent passed away, which we can bookmark for later, but I didn't find out till like right before they passed away that I apparently was like the worst dancer in class, period. I have no recollection of that, obviously, but I am very stubborn and I stuck with it. And it's interesting because like my perception of my dance career, particularly as a kid, I wasn't the best technical dancer in troupe because I ultimately ended up dancing six nights a week, five hours a night, competitive, all that stuff. I was never the best technical dancer, but I was by far the best interpreter of dance. You know what I mean? And I was also the tallest. So I was always in the center of the dance. I was always really good. I was always getting lots of compliments. So I I just like had no idea. I was really, really, really bad at it. But it tracks when I look at the rest of my life. Well, you muscled through. That's amazing. And so what was that like in terms of you danced for a while, but then I read one article and I love how you wrote it. You said you lost your knee to the war. Yeah, I actually quit dancing in a studio a little bit before that. And it was really when I was leaving junior high to go to high school, I wanted to do theater. My grandparents did theater. They were actors. And so I had spent a bunch of time in the summers going to rehearsals with them and I had just fallen in love with it. And my parents looked at me and they were like, you can do one or the other. You can't do both. You're going to have to make a decision. And we're okay with whatever you want to choose, which was so amazing of them to sort of give me the agency to decide. And I decided to do theater. So of course, then I started doing theater and especially into my early career, specialized, right, was a dancer actor, I guess, in the theater. But then, yes, when I was 20... This is so gross. I was warming up. I was in North Carolina doing a summer stock job. This is so messed up and so American. I was in the rehearsal room warming up because you have to warm up before rehearsal as a dancer. And I was at the bar and I had taken my leg and I was stretching it up, you know, as you do. So you're standing on one leg and stretching the other leg. And I'm not super flexible. I've never been. And I was frustrated because I felt like I was falling behind in the show. So I was like really pulling my leg up. And my stationary knee went out. It just popped out and Ah. didn't go back in. I know. Oh, my God. And my friend who was there and saw it happen, he described it as it was like someone looked down, saw their foot was caught in the bear trap and realized they had to cut it off. I don't remember any of this at all. Oh, my gosh. I just knocked it back in with my hand, which was a bad move I found out afterwards. That was sort of the beginning of the end of my dance career. I danced for a few more years. And I had surgery, obviously, with this orthopedist from the Kansas City Chiefs. Go Chiefs, almost Super Bowl. And it was amazing. But yes, the knees went and I had to stop dancing. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Well, the listeners can't see, but my jaw was open the entire time because it's just such a horrible story. Oh, gosh. Well, one question I always like to ask people is the college and how they chose it and the decision making behind it. Because what I've realized is all the success that people have now no one knew what they wanted to do when they were 17 to 18. And you pick your major and you're like, yes, this is my life path. But I'm a big believer in the defining decade that Meg Jay wrote a book about and how your 20s really sets you up in your personal, your professional, all that. How did you choose the college you went to and what was your major? Yes, I love this question. Not enough people ask about it, I don't think. So I love that you asked about that. 
when I was coming out of high school, I knew I wanted to do theater. I knew I wanted to be an actor. And I also happened to just be one of those kids that was very good at school. I think I was leaving high school with like a 4.6 GPA or something like that. What an underachiever. Yeah, I know. Oh, gosh. And so at the time, I really wanted to go to Northwestern or NYU. You know, I was reasonably sure I would get into both of those schools for theater. But I had gone in my sophomore year of high school. I was accepted to Missouri Fine Arts Academy. It's still around, actually, this incredible interdisciplinary arts camp for the top 200 arts students in Missouri each summer. And it was on the campus of, at the time, what was called Southwest Missouri State University in Springfield, Missouri. Now it's Missouri State University, if you look it up. And I had this really incredible experience there. I mean, that was life-changing and absolutely had a ton to do with this weird, crazy career that I have now. And so I just decided to apply to SMS as a backup. I got in and then I applied for the presidential scholarship, which it was given out to very few people. And it was a merit-based full ride. And the merit was your grades, your record of volunteer service, which is something I've always done, your community involvement and things that you built proactively. And I got it. And then I took the ACT and my ACT scores got me what's called Bright Flight in Missouri. So all of a sudden, when I looked at going to Northwestern and NYU, it was going to, at the time, cost $25,000, $30,000 a year. And when I looked at SMS, I was going to get paid to go there because Bright Flight was just like free money. So I thought at the time, I was like, I guess I should probably go here or to this liberal arts school and get a BFA. And it wasn't a terrible trade-off because John Goodman went to my school, Kathleen Turner. Oh, wow. My contemporaries, Nathan Tyson, who just completed the run of his musical Paradise Square, Kyle Dean Massey, who just had this crazy Hallmark movie that was amazing. It was an okay choice. It wasn't NYU or Northwestern, but I felt pretty good about it. And to your point that you made introducing this topic, I had no idea at the time that ensuring that I had no student debt was actually going to be the one thing that has allowed me to sustain this insane career and pursue these crazy things that I want to do and I want to invent that don't exist yet. Because if I'd had student debt, I'd be working in a job with a big salary, but it wouldn't have been something I wanted to do with my heart and soul. Especially with four years, even though it's a cheaper school back then, but still it's a six-figure level debt that you'd start your life with. And I have the same where I had a lot of scholarships and I went to UC Berkeley with the public school, but I had a lot of Pell Grants because we got a lot of scholarships. But I still remember paying off the $32,000 of student debt that I had owned. And I'm like, this is so stressful. And it was the worst. Well, and plus $32,000 in student debt, too, as we all know, isn't $32,000. It's like double that. I always say it's post-tax dollars, so it's more than that. So what was your first job after graduation? I came here to New York. So I graduated in May of 2003. I went back to Kansas City to do a production of Hedvig and the Angry Inch that I'd already had lined up. And I took a job with a temp agency. That's how long ago it was. But a temp agency that I knew had offices in New York. So I worked at a roofing company that summer. And they were awesome. It was a great job. <laughs> and I transferred with this temp agency when I moved to New York in September. I was placed immediately with a textiles company, like a little $5 million a year Israeli textiles company. And I was in charge of traffic, which in textiles means logistics, basically, for the shipping containers. So I was managing all the shipping containers and their routing. It was wild. <laughs> such a neat job. So the glamorous industry starts then. <laughs> starts right then. But you know, I was by far the youngest person in that office. And everybody was like a life New Yorker. And they really helped parent me through my first year in New York, which I am forever grateful for. 
And I bartended too. I picked up a part-timing bartending job and I was volunteering at a soup kitchen on Saturday mornings. So as a side note, I very quickly ended up with a life-threatening case of pneumonia because <laughs> I was working too hard. I learned a lesson. I try not to do that anymore. And I just started auditioning. And in August, I guess, of 2004, so just about a year later, I booked Mac and Mabel at Goodspeed Opera House, which is one of our most important, most incredible regional theaters in the United States. And I spent the next, whatever, 14 weeks sharing a dressing room with Donna McKechnie, who was the original Cassie in a chorus line. And I also understudied her and went on for her for a couple of weeks. And Christiane Knoll, who has done a ton of Broadway, too. It was incredible and totally life-changing. That's amazing. And so what was it like for you to be on Broadway when you were in Missouri and thinking about the arts and theater and performing, but then here you are in New York, in Broadway. How did that feel? Well, I want to clarify that wasn't Broadway. That was regional, just so people don't think I'm lying about my career. (laughs) The truth of the matter is, I always knew that was where I was meant to be. I always feel in awe that I'm in these rooms, but I never felt out of place. I knew that was what was going to be the thing. So it felt just comfortable and incredible and right, I guess. Well, it's lucky, too. So many people search their whole lives and they don't know when that feeling is. They're in search for it. Totally. And when you dig back, even how I got that job was such a lesson because to your point about luck and not, you know, all those great quotes about the intersection of opportunity and persistence. I, in college, was one of 15 actors in the United States chosen to be an apprentice at the Brookshire Theater Festival up in Stockbridge. And that was a program you paid to go do. So I was trained as an actor there. And one of the things that happened as a result of me being up there is I also that summer understudied, I'm putting air quotes for everybody listening, understudied Christina Marie Norup, who had been on Broadway a bunch in a, some new musical that I can't even remember that. Oh, a saint she ain't. That's what it was called. Let's just bookmark. I wasn't allowed to go to rehearsal. There was no way <laughs> they were going to ever put me on. But we got an understudy credit. So this is on my resume. January, February of 2004, before I booked Goodspeed, an agency called DDO that was out in L.A. was becoming bi-coastal. So they actually held open auditions in New York, which doesn't happen very often for agencies. That's almost all relationships to get an agent. So I went and I got picked up by them because they knew Christina and knew about that show. All of a sudden, this thing that was kind of like not a real thing meant something to the agent. So they're like, oh, we'll pick her up. And because they had come from L.A., the director of Mac and Mabel was an L.A.-based director. So that's how they got me the audition. And then, of course, I did the work. They were looking for someone who was a great actor who could also dance well enough to cover Donna. I did that work. But it's such a connect the dots moment. I love that you shared that because so many people, yes, I don't want to trivialize how much work and the effort you put in there, but it's so much about serendipitous moments and the people you know at that moment or one random interaction that actually helps put it together. So I do always like to highlight that there's a lot of luck and serendipity involved. So rewind. So then what was your experience like for that time period? How long were you doing that for before the next transition? Not long. It was wild. I was coming up on the end of Mac and Mabel and I had made friends with all the incredible women who run Goodspeed. So the line producer at the time, who's now the artistic director, the company manager, I just loved these women. What a surprise. And I was like, I don't want to hang out with the actors. I want to know more about you guys. And the company manager shared with me that my agent had almost lost me that job. This has to do with a bunch of weird theater foolishness where like, I didn't have my union card because we're laborers as actors and we have a union. I didn't have my union card. This was a union production. And so one of the things that happens in theater is they can hire a certain amount of non-equity, non-union. That's what we call non-union people. 
and you do the gig. This is how it used to work, non-union until the last two weeks. And then you get your equity card and you get paid union rates. But that also meant that for whatever, out of those 14 weeks, 12 of those weeks, I was being paid like $260 a week to be a principal in this show. They were trying to move to Broadway and to understudy Donna and to go on. This is like at the time, for better or worse, it's just standard in the theater. But my agent was from L.A. and just had a conniption about this, apparently, but never discussed it with me. And he was super rude to the Goodspeed team. And he kept saying, no, she's not going to take this without asking me. Oh, yeah. So they were really kind to share that with me. And my contract was up right around the time that we were finishing Mac and Mabel. So in my house that I was staying with all the other principals who were all about a decade older than me, at least. I was like, what do you guys think? I was on for Donna when everybody was up from New York. I got reviewed. Everybody was like, who is this girl? Do you think that your agents would take a call from me? Because I'm thinking I don't want to resign with him. I'm too young to have someone representing me in this way. And they were all like, absolutely, we'll set it up. Great. So I had calls with all their agents and no one picked me up, which was not what I was expecting. The story you get told is that scenario that I was in was the exact right scenario. There was nothing else I could do to prove I am a commodity. I will make you money. But I decided not to resign with him. And that sort of just shifted everything because all of a sudden I went from having agent appointments for auditions where people want to see you to having to go to what are mandatory open auditions for union members, which are fine. But like I have been on the other side of the table now. They're mind numbing, right? You see so many people all day, varying levels of talent. It just wasn't working. And I didn't know how to work that room the same way I knew how to work an agent appointment. After a bit of that, I just started making my own work. And that was really the starting point of like the rest of my career. Amazing. What do you mean starting your own work? I just started creating shows that I was in charge of so that I didn't have to wait for someone to cast me. (laughs) Incredible. And so what was the first project or show that you did on your own? I had the great pleasure in my 20s of getting to work at Joe Allen Restaurant. Have you ever been when you've been in New York? Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. So Joe is a real human. Joe came up in New York City. He worked for Elaine on the east side for a long time as a bouncer. And he knew all the Broadway people that went to Elaine's. And in 1964 or 65, he branched off and made his own restaurant. He sort of infamously had lots of girlfriends from Broadway. So there was this musical called Kelly that was this giant flop. It ran for one night. And the cast of Kelly, I can't remember, this is in the 70s, maybe? The cast of Kelly came to Joe Allen to celebrate their opening and their closing night. And at the end of this infamous evening, they gave Joe a poster because you have show posters. That is when Joe started what's called the flop wall, and it still exists today. So if you go to Joe Allen, the entire perimeter wall around Joe Allen is filled with show posters of flops, and that's it. So they either had to have lost more than a million dollars or ran less than a week. And this is like this iconic environment. And everybody who's everybody goes to Joe Allen for dinner before theater. And so I was working for Joe on and off across my 20s, and I... And my friend looked at the flop wall and we were like, why don't we make a show called Broadway Bombs that celebrates great songs from terrible shows? Because there's so many good songs in these just stinker shows. So we did. And we ran that for almost five years. And each year we would update it with new bombs from the season. And all the Joe Allen regulars became audience members. It was my first real go at creating something from scratch, being an actor in it and producing it, which has been a common theme across a lot of my career. I love it. Well, I mean, you had me at flop wall, but also the Broadway bombs. It's like right in my alley and growth from flops didn't register, but growth from failure did. But it's similar. Yes. Concept. 
<laughs> and so after Broadway bombs for about a handful of years, what did you do after that? I started a theater in Cleveland for a couple of summers with Everett Quinson from the Ridiculous Theater Company who just passed away. He's like a institution, just such an important artist in the history of New York City theater. So that was like incredible. That opportunity to do that was super incredible. And then that sort of led me into like about the time I started Broadway Unlocked, my first company, almost right after that. Amazing. And for those who don't know, can you share more about Broadway Unlocked? I think I'm retiring Broadway Unlocked at this point, funny enough, because we have another brand called All Together Now, which is a little more inclusive, obviously. But Broadway Unlocked came out of, in 2013, I created Broadway's first hybrid live-streamed interactive concert, which like now, of course, out of COVID, we're all like, yeah, of course. But like in 2013, 10 years before, right, right. Yeah, everybody was like, what are you doing? And so I was just trying to think of a name that could help people understand this concert that was happening in person, but also on the internet. Came up with Broadway Unlocked and my very kind friends at the Manifesto Agency, which is an insane branding agency and identity agency, branded it for me. And it was the Broadway Unlocked concert for a couple of years. And then I started actually building it into a company that focused on live streaming and live digital in the arts. Can you share more? Because I read an interview you did about why you did it. So when you think about technology and disruption, it seemed to impact every other space. But how did it come into your mind of like, yes, this is what I want to do 10 years before things were really kind of virtual for everybody? What were the things that led you to actually create this? You know how when you have origin stories, there's so many different ways to tell it. And there's so many ways in. It's very complex when you make some things. I read an interview with an artistic director last week at Oregon Shakespeare Festival, and she sort of named and simplified exactly why I did this. If I was to pick one way to tell this story, I'm going to go down that path. I had created a benefit concert, like a gala benefit concert model smashed together to raise money for survivors of violence and Crime Victims Treatment Center, which is the country's oldest, most comprehensive center for free services and treatment for survivors of violence. It's a cause that means a lot to me. That center has saved the lives of many of my friends and many of my collaborators. And I wanted to do something to give back. And I had done the benefit concert for a couple of years and it was great. I mean, gross profit was somewhere around 20, 25K, which is not bad for, you know, I was 28 at the time. I did not know a bunch of wealthy people. I was pretty proud, but I couldn't figure out how to grow it past that. And I love growing things. Like I just love it so much. And so <laughs> the thing that I realized in listening to the Nataki's interview last week is that the reason I created a hybrid concert is because we were getting the invitation wrong. That's the thing that Nataki said a couple of weeks ago that I just thought, oh, that's it. Because if you think back to those benefit concerts, the invitation was, if you live in the tri-state area and you are wealthy and you are not ashamed to talk about surviving violence, you're invited to this concert. That's a nightmare Venn diagram, right? Like, who <laughs> is that? Yeah. That's a very small group of people. And... I intuitively knew that, just not in those great words that she used. And so I thought, I know people want to be connected to and have access to Broadway. And right now, you can't do it in real time. You wait for tiny tidbits of clips to come out two weeks later if you're outside of New York. I also happen to know there's technology that will allow us to live stream this now. So maybe if I say, hey, you're invited if you live anywhere and you have a decent internet speed, and you love Broadway, all of a sudden that invitation gets bigger, a little more accurate. And it allowed me to start building stewardship with younger donors, small donors, younger donors. That started working. I was like, 
oh, got it, got it, got it. Great. So in-person is bigger, high net value donors. The digital is my small grassroots donors. And I can provide experiences to both of them and start growing this whole thing. And that's how this all started. Incredible. It's very inclusive to your point of just thinking about who's at home wanting to help or wanting to contribute, but didn't feel that that invitation was for them. Love that. Absolutely. So what is, as it's evolved, can you describe what Altogether is now? Where can people find it, consume it? How do you find these spaces online or the entertainment accessible? We have a centralized website, obviously, which is altogethernow.live. But it's more focused on like the people who actually engage us as a studio to create these live digital experiences. Although we do have a show page on there, so you can see what we've got going on. Our work happens across Broadway, like the live stream. This will probably be over by the time this comes out. But the simulcast of Between Riverside and Crazy is I directed that on Broadway. So you can watch that from home right now, which is wild. But we also have lecture series with Smithsonian Magazine that happens. So it's across a lot of different entities who own the show. And if you're looking to watch any of these things, they have a few things in common. They all happen online. They all happen on platforms that exist. If you, for instance, downloaded Stellar, the Stellar platform, great partners of ours, we love them, you would see a lot of our shows in their sort of lineup because we work on that platform a lot. Same thing with Zoom. We actually do a lot of stuff on Zoom, although there's not a great centralized place to find that. Eventbrite, I guess, looking for online shows. We're behind an awful lot of them. But this is a problem, right? Your question brings up a huge question mark that I certainly don't have the answer to yet, which is if everyone's doing direct-to-consumer content, how are people finding it? Because it's stretched across all these different distribution points. So for you, when you think about your end clients, so we talked about Broadway a little bit. I know you did some with more educational sites and researches, museums, but what are the segments of clients that you typically cater to? I think. We're still learning. That's my caveat is we're still learning because COVID was this interesting forcing mechanism that required everyone to become an early adopter of this, even if that's not actually where they sit. So it's changed a lot over the last three years. But I do feel that we're starting to see some consistencies finally for the long haul, which I'm, as a side note, so relieved about. So the answer to your question currently is arts and entertainment. So everything from Broadway to having conversations with like AEG and presenters of live entertainment brands. So everything from Smithsonian lecture series that we do, Smithsonian Magazine lecture series, to like just having a conversation about a big luxury brand and what it means to take an experiential in-person event and live stream it and create a digital experience around it. So brands, nonprofits, I think because people are so passionate about impact work, and they are often distributed across many locations. It seems to work really well for nonprofits. And education, like you said, we do, for instance, a ton of work with Columbia Business School because they have alumni and students all across the world. There's a mandate to make sure people have access to this learning. So those are the four pockets that I'm seeing a clear business model and mandate, like I said, and people really starting to figure out, oh, here's how I can grow my own business by investing in live digital. Love it. You'd mentioned just live performance, but being someone who performed live both dance and also in theater, and then now helping transition that so people can consume that virtually, what are the things that you do or see that makes it more digestible? The idea is like, oh, so when Zoom happens, people were looking all over the place and they seem disconnected because it is hard to transfer that feeling of engagement or connection 
virtually? How do you do that for your projects altogether without giving away your secret sauce? Oh, no, not at all. I actually love talking about this. And two, because our business is not for everybody. Our business is for other businesses that actually have the infrastructure to invest in live digital as a way to grow. But that doesn't mean everybody else shouldn't know how to do these things. I think personally, I'm like not a hold the cards in my pocket kind of person. It's just like not how my brain's wired. So I think about this scientific study that was done in the arts because, you know, I know the most about the arts. So this is where I'm always going to come back to. And it's been proven that when we go to see theater together in person, our heartbeats sync up, which is wild. Isn't that cool? That is wild. That is so cool. So that actually is at the base of how I approach designing digital experiences is how can I translate or adapt our synced heartbeats? So in a digital space for me, that frequently means creating moments that make us feel connected, even if we're sitting in our living rooms alone. And to your point, that means, at least for me, we don't do live broadcasts where someone's just talking at, because that might as well just be consumed on demand, in my opinion, in my opinion, but also in the results that we get. We do see that in the results. So whether it's the simple reframe of a host constantly acknowledging the digital audience, even if they can't see them, to planned live poll moments where you get to interact, to having a venue manager in the chat who's got all these pin chats ready to drop, to drum up interaction, to something as neat as if you buy your ticket to your live digital event, we also send you a smart light bulb that's been programmed to dim the lights at 8 p.m. when it starts. Those are all the moments where I say, okay, I can kind of recreate that sense of a shared heartbeat. That's why someone's going to pay to come to a digital event. Stay, because I want you to stay 60 to 90 minutes at a live digital event, because we want you to be more deeply engaged than a consumer of social media. And I want you to come back. I want you to come back or I want you to start going in person. That's wild, by the way. I love that data point that your heartbeat syncs up. Love, love, love that. It's so cool. Have people told you without knowing that and what you're trying to do in terms of how to combat that? Have people told you, why was that so good? Or what just happened? Because I felt more engaged in that session than others. And just as feedback, I'm curious. I'm thinking of one particular thing that happened that is remains one of my favorite examples of like feedback that we got. And it was right at the beginning, actually, funny enough. This was fall of 2020, I think. We designed a gala experience for the cancer support community. This is an international organization. They provide resources to people who are living with cancer and also family members. So we thought, all right, this is pretty cool because usually these galas are localized to the chapter in each town. We have this chance to bring all these people together who have been deeply personally affected by cancer. What are we going to do? How do we do this? And we did a bunch of cool things, but one of the things that stands out is we designed this venue on the Hopin platform. Most of you listening have probably ended up on Hopin at one time or another during the pandemic. It has, if you'll remember, those different areas that you can go to. So we designed this experience where you get in before the gala, you hit the lobby, you see what's going on. You can go to what we called the gallery and watch survivor stories in the gallery on demand ahead of time. I think what Hopin's parlance was is sessions. We turned that into the mezzanine. We use theater terms. And you could go to the mezzanine to either run into people you knew or there was like a live trunk show going on in there for charity, all kinds of cool things. But then there was also this networking area of Hopin, if you remember that. So I think we called it the bar, actually. 
So you go to the bar to meet other people. And these two folks wandered in there, their own agency. We did not tell them to go there. This was the free roam experience part of the night. And they spun the wheel and they got matched up with each other. And they told us all of a sudden this person in India who was about to start treatment for this very specific form of cancer got matched up with a woman who survived it. And they were able to talk and to meet and exchange their contact information and create this connection that we always say is so much bigger than anything we could have engineered. Letting people have their own agency inside the experience and just giving it some good, thoughtful, intentional parameters to increase the likelihood that it's going to be great. Like that moment, we couldn't have engineered it. It's one of my favorite stories. Incredible. I love that. I could ask you so many more questions about Altogether Now. I'll make sure to put the website on the show notes so people can find out more. But I just love, love, love that. Maybe one last question related to the work, and then I'll get into the typical questions I ask everybody. But you had a quote in one of your many, many interviews that I loved consuming. But you said the power of storytelling is going to change the world. Can you expand on that? Because I just love that. Well, you know, maybe it actually has to do with what we were just talking about a little bit. I think the reason that I and so many people believe that stories change hearts, minds, culture is because there's some structure in a story, but there's also a lot of room for your own thinking and your own interpretation and your own processing and your own curiosity inside of it. That's always why I've believed so strongly in the theater. You go and you have this incredible, impactful moment where your heartbeat syncs up with other audience members, but you're also left to ask yourself questions about why you think what you think. I'm thinking about I just saw Leopold Stott, which is Tom Stoppard's play that's on Broadway about four or five generations of the same family, only a few of whom survived the Holocaust. And the play is beautiful. It's like this epic, huge, gorgeous, just masterful play. But it also asks a lot of really important questions about what it means to be family, what it means to be Jewish, which like I am not. It gave me this window in to ask questions I never even knew I needed to be asking myself. I just believe so deeply in the power of storytelling. And so the idea that I can open that up to so many more people by providing digital access is just a no-brainer for me. Uh, Amazing. How many letters do you get or emails or comments about how much you've opened people's minds, perspective, access? So many, which is the most amazing thing. And actually, I just got into a conversation on Twitter a couple nights ago with this whole group of folks who make digital theater, like actual theatrical pieces that are made for the digital environment. And I'm so inspired by them. And while that's not the battle I have ended up fighting, I love that shit. And I was talking to this theater maker that I admire a ton. Oh my gosh, Joshua Gelb, go look up Theater in Quarantine and watch a couple of their pieces because he and Katie Rose McLaughlin, who are co-founders of that, they just did insane, mind-blowing work. But, you know, he was like... I am so curious about your work and commercially because he's making nonprofit art, real art with a capital A. And even that, being able to dialogue back and forth between that and how much he said, at least, that I have opened his eyes to new ideas. And certainly I take so much inspiration from his work. I love those moments. And there's a lot of people out there like that. Love it. Love it. Well, I will take a pause there because I asked you five hours of questions on your work because I love it so much. But I'll switch gears and start asking the questions I ask everybody, but starting with inspiration, because you mentioned it, who or what inspires you? So many things. Great art makers, just period. Anybody who's making important art, particularly that has an element of activism, 
in it, which, you know, I consider to be all the way from Katie Rose and Josh and Theater in Quarantine to Tom Stoppard writing this great American play to my artist friends who, (laughs) on top of their artistic careers, are taking the time to create these nonprofits that serve artists. Ring of Keys serves women, non-binary and trans artists in the theater. And there's just a whole bunch of them. There's so many of them. Those artists working to change the world, period, the end. Also, I'm so lucky to get to run around with a bunch of impact professionals from the corporate world. I'm in a really cool group of people called Social Impact Supper Club. And I am so freaking inspired by these people because I don't understand institutions. I don't get it. I don't understand systems that don't make sense to me. Do you know what I mean? Like, I'm just like, that's not my place. And to see these people make careers out of making sure these corporations are feeding triple bottom lines is no end to the source of inspiration I get from those people. That's another big one. And then mountains. It's not a human. I'm like so inspired by mountains and big American open space. That's where I come up with my best ideas. Love it. Actually, no one's ever mentioned a viewpoint before, but some people have mentioned just being outside and being one with nature is very inspirational to them. But I love that mountains. But also going back to the supper club, that sounds extraordinary. And I'm going to self-invite in one of those supper clubs because that sounds amazing. You have so much passion for your professional journey, but so much of this conversation, there's mentions of your service. And you mentioned all the volunteer work you've done. And I'm a part of my Rotary Club locally, and the tagline is service above self. You seem to be very service forward. Where did that come from? I was thinking about that the other day. I'm not entirely sure. It's one thing. I think part of it came from my dad working for Ewing. Ewing Kaufman started Marion Labs out of a garage. And for whatever reason, incorporated that service to others through every fiber of that company, as I understood it. And we had a lot of conversations when I was a kid. Dad would come home and talk about how that was inspiring him. We did a lot of talking about that. That had to have been part of the fabric weave there. And then Missouri Fine Arts Academy, which I was talking about earlier, that was a really interesting experience in which they designed it so that, A, I went as a primary participant in the theater. The discipline that I went was accepted for was theater. But they designed the entire thing so that 80% of the classes and programs that I consumed had to be outside my discipline. One of those things was volunteering. We all had to go volunteer. So in 10th grade, I, for the first time ever, went to a Head Start program in Springfield and I taught tap. I taught the kids tap steps. But I was like, oh, shit, what I know how to do can actually change someone's life for the better, even if it's just you had a lot of fun today. You know what I mean? So when I left there, I immediately, when I went back for my, actually, I think I went in my junior year. That's right. Because then my senior year, after I'd gone to Missouri Fine Arts Academy, I really wanted to volunteer through the arts. And so someone gave me this Midsummer Night's Dream lesson plan for fifth graders. Like it was like a whole book on how to do Midsummer Night's Dream with fifth graders. So I went to the elementary school next to our high school and I was like, would you guys like to do this with me? And my friend Stacy and I, during their recess after school every day for three months, we put on a production of A Midsummer Night's Dream with fifth graders. And it just never stopped from there. All these people that I've run into across my life that also valued service continued to deepen my own commitment to it. One person I interviewed, she's a cancer survivor, and she created this nonprofit called Chick Mission, and it focuses on women with cancer who have also fertility desires. So the idea is most of it's not covered by insurance, and she created this nonprofit that helps women 
either freeze her eggs or think about fertility issues while going through chemo. And she said this one line that I just love where, speaking of impact, she said, I'm not going to change the world, but I could change a world. And that is something I can try to control. And what ends up happening is she's changed hundreds of worlds and babies have been born because of her, literally. And for you, same thing. You're not going to change the world, but you know, you're changing a lot of individual worlds, which collectively, that's the point. And it's so beautiful to me. We need a lot more people like you who just want to change one little tiny world and it ends up being a lot more impact than you think. So just beautifully done. We bookmarked, and I'm going to bring it back now to that page, your parents, because I read an interview and I learned a lot about you in one paragraph. And you added a lot of really funny text to this interview, but your mom passed away when she was 28. Your dad passed away at the age of 32. I was 28 and 32. Mm -hmm. And one month after that, your boyfriend broke up with you. (laughs) Yeah. And this interview, you had such levity too. And I'm like, you know what? This is amazing. So bringing that bookmark back, can you talk about that impact for you? Oh, yeah. Yes, levity. I'm a funny human. And I also believe it's sometimes more effective to help people download what you're offering through a story if you pepper it with some humor. But like, don't get me wrong, 10 years of crying all the time, trauma therapy, like the whole thing, you know what I mean? (laughs) Oh, my God. It's so interesting. I'm from a Midwestern family. My mom's side is very tiny. She has one brother, her parents, and her brother has one kid. My dad's family is huge. No one was divorced until one of my aunts got divorced two or three years ago. I know all my first cousins. There's like 13 of us. I know second cousins. I know third cousins. I know great uncles. Again, not a lot of divorce in our family. So like I really was raised, my brother and I talk about this a lot. We were raised inside this image of the perfect American family, which was jarring when we got old enough to realize my mom was an alcoholic, like a bad one. Do you know what I mean? So then we were like, oh no, what is this? What's going on? And I kind of got lucky in a sense. I hate to even say that, but like I was out of the house by the time it got very, very bad. I was in college. My brother was amazing. He was still at home because he's younger than me, but it was a nightmare. My parents were married 35 years or something like that. And my dad loved my mom. I mean, my mom loved my dad, but my mom just had so much trauma. I still feel like I don't really know about or understand. And it was really, really bad. She was having seizures and falling downstairs. And she was lying and telling her friends my dad was hitting her. I had to have that conversation after she died because they all still thought my dad was beating her. And I was like, oh, my God, you guys. (laughs) Holy shit. As a side note, wild how little most people understand about addiction, even though it's pretty textbook, at least in my experience. She passed away when I was 28, like you said, and she was 52, which is crazy because I'm like 10 years younger than that now, which is wild. And my dad lasted five years and then he just died too, you know? He was like, his heart was broken and he had also smoked his whole life. I found some medical records that he had hidden and I think he had the beginnings of emphysema as well. So he passed away when I was 32. I was just like, oh my God, we had this nuclear family and then we were like, and now we have nothing. It's all gone. And then yes, my boyfriend of five years broke up with me like three weeks later. And looking back, to be fair, He probably had wanted out of the relationship for a while. And, you know, we all get stuck in those things where it just doesn't feel right, but we don't know how to get out of it. And there was this very specific instance not long before it happened where my Aunt Gail stopped him in our kitchen because he was with me when all this happened and said, I just so admire how much respect you two have for each other. 
what love you share. I imagine that I don't know because I don't particularly stay in contact with him anymore. But I imagine that probably scared the shit out of him because he was a good guy for the most part. And so he broke up with me. And wow, it is the only time in my entire life I have asked myself, do I want to keep going? Like keep living. And it was like for two seconds, you know, and I was like, yes, obviously. But like, I don't know, you sit there and you're like, holy shit, it's me and the dog. Like, that's it. And I was only 32. I mean, that was not too long ago, 10 years ago for you. But you're such a positive person. I'm sure the listeners can hear your passion and enthusiasm for the arts and your work and life generally. How did that impact your work? Because it seems like you have a lot of empathy. Does that get amplified or how did that translate into your work, if at all? Well, let's see. My dad died in June of 2013. So I had already created the first Give Back concert in April. And we did another one in 14. I'm trying to like remember the timeline. And so in some ways, I suppose it certainly deepened my grit and determination to make this thing that gave back to the world, but also make this thing that would keep me empowered and sustained. I felt a real need to like build something for myself that no one could take away from me after that. I feel like that decade, until not very long ago, one of the sort of reverse impacts was that I spent too much time, effort, energy on taking care of everybody else through my work. Looking back, that's my opinion about it and also my therapist because it was easier. After having survived all that, it was much easier to take care of everybody else because art is a great translator of that, a great vehicle much, much easier to take care of everybody else. That's something that now, especially in the last year or so, I've really started acknowledging and thinking about and trying to make sure, because I am so apt to be in service anyway. And then all that shit happened. So the reframe's working well for me as a self-protective measure to take care of everybody else. And I'm trying these days to like reclaim a little bit of, hey, it is okay to take care of yourself first through your business, through what you do in your personal life through your art making. One question I haven't asked directly yet, and I haven't heard much in the story so far is obviously the name of the show is Growth From Failure. And I used to ask people, can you share your biggest failure, your biggest struggle? And then it changed to, can you share your biggest growth moment? Because inevitably, one kind of comes from the other. And so I'm curious for you, what was the most transformative struggle or failure moment if you can share? And ultimately, I'm guessing a lot of growth from it. I hope this is okay, but I actually think it's happening right now. I think it's in progress. I think COVID brought this opportunity to financialize my work in a way that had never been done. And I had been studying and prepping for a long time, reading about what it meant to be a founder, because right, I have a BFA in musical theaters. So that's not super helpful. <laughs> <laughs> that's not fair. It actually was helpful in a lot of ways. But anyway, so I was like prepped and primed. I brought on a co founder, we built this business and we were doing things right. And then the roller coaster of all of these last three years started and we had to start laying people off. Try doing that when you're an empathetic artist. I love being a CEO and I love to use that title and it makes me feel very empowered, but I was not cut out for that. So just a couple of weeks ago, my co-founder decided to leave the company. What I think is interesting about the growth moment question in this is that it's sort of two-sided for me what I'm staring down and trying to make sure I really lean into in this moment. It's personal and professional. On a professional side, I have this crazy opportunity to take my company back just on my own in this moment of big change in terms of people's relationship with live digital and really decide what I want to do with it. 
which again, back to my whole thing about taking care of other people. I love making things with people. So I don't very often just say like, this is mine and I'm going to do this. So while I don't know that I have the growth has happened yet, I feel the potential for that. And I'm trying to lean into it. And on a personal level, to the exact point you brought up, now my co-founders left. So I'm like, oh my God, what the fuck is wrong with me? Why won't anybody stay? But that's not real. Well, it's real because I feel that way. But it's an opportunity. This is huge opportunity that I see for myself. And I have really been trying to do this across the last couple of weeks to be present, let it be hard, but to remember it's not the end. It's just the beginning of something, which is like not easy when you've survived a whole bunch of trauma. I feel a little bit like it's a therapy test. I was telling this to someone. I was like, I feel like everything I've learned in therapy is now being put to the test to see if I actually listened and paid attention. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm trying to be an A student here and it feels really good. So I also think that precipice of growth is huge as long as I continue to commit to really asking myself to lean into it. I love it. Are you familiar with Rick Rubin? Just by name. So he's arguably one of the best music producers, and he's produced everyone from LO Cool J to Red Hot Chili Peppers, really wide ranging. And he just came up with a book called The Creative Act. And it's not a biography about him, but he writes in such a beautiful way. But he had this one passage that I have to quote, because it reminds me of where you are in this mental state now. But It says, create an environment where you're free to express what you're afraid to express. Oh, I love that. So one of the things I love about him is he doesn't know to play any musical instrument, but he's one of the best music producers. So if you look at the back of LL Cool J's album, and I forget which album it is, but in the back, most people will say produced by. He puts reduced by Rick Rubin. And for him, the idea is it's reduction that creates the most beautiful form of expression, whether it's in music, but what does this moment need right now? And so you reduce all the other noise and here you produce something. And I just love that so much. And for you, that moment that you're trying to narrow in on being present and thinking about that, I just love that. So it reminded me of sharing that with you because right now I'm reading The Creative Act and it's just beautiful and it resonates right now. Can I ask you a question? Yeah, (laughs) yeah, yeah. Do you find with most of your guests, what is people's relationship by and large to the word failure or the concept of failure? Are there connections across everybody you've interviewed? For the most part, I think the filter is, hey, would you be on my show? Great. What's the name of your show? Oh, it's called Growth From Failure. And usually it weeds up people who are uncomfortable with the F word and some who (laughs) embrace it. The ones who, for the most part, are on the show embrace the word failure because at some moment, not surprisingly, they've all had that struggle and that failure. And they're like, oh my gosh, which one am I going to mention? Because there are so many. (laughs) And whether it's personal or professional. And so I'm very grateful that that filter does help take away people who are afraid to say, well, I've never failed. We've all failed. And it's the idea is, how do you define failure? Am I going to answer it correctly? And the idea of the show is just to share failure and struggle means something different to everybody. So let's share all of that. And so whether it's a mom who passed away at the age of 24 and left her daughter to be a single stay-at-home mom, that was one, not failure, but certainly struggle. And that changed her whole life. Or for another who had breast cancer, that changed her whole life. So every bit of failure could be very subjective, whether it's personal body failure, whether it's mental failure, failure of the system. It is very wide ranging. And I love the answers from it because selfishly, I grow and get perspective of all these different people. But no, to answer your question directly, it's been very wide ranging, but ultimately people embrace the F word. Cool. Yeah. A couple more questions. What is your superpower? My ability to be ruthlessly and sometimes recklessly me in all situations, the core, the essence of who I am, which is like a great gift from being an actor first. 
Oh, that is such a superpower. I think we're the same age, but it only took until my late 30s, early 40s to understand comfortability in oneself is a superpower. It took me decades to figure out, oh, there is only one me out there and be comfortable with this person. But I love that. Your ability to be you. Love it. (laughs) If you could speak to Jess right after college, what would you tell her? Your instinct is to think about and follow what you want to do. And that is the right path. There's no map for it. And it's not easy, but that is the thing to do. Keep on it. Also, maybe just go take a corporate job for like a year and make a bunch of money. It will make things a little easier. (laughs) I can attest to that. Yes. It gives a lot of flexibility for projects that we've discussed. One quote I would just want to read out loud that you said, just to get your response, is you're interviewed and the quote was, girl, no one got famous without being a little fucked up. Oh, my mentor Cheryl Miller said that to me right after my dad died. (laughs) It's like 100% true. I love her so much. I think she was retiring right when I came through my university. She's a dance teacher who sent all our dancers who've ever been on Broadway, all Cheryl, we call her Mama Miller, all Mama Miller girls. She has since become my friend. She texted me that one day when I was just like having a really hard time because I just feel like I kind of lost my sense of humor for a few years, as you imagine might happen. I thought that is so true. And it impacts everything from Obviously, my artistic abilities as an actor and a director are deepened by all these experiences. I can access things that most humans can't access. But also in my professional life, I find I make choices in my business based on treating people the way I wish I had been treated and taking care of knowing that this stuff happens in people's lives and you don't know it half of the time. It permutates every corner of my life. Not the least of which is being able to like come on a podcast and be that crazy girl who's talking about her alcoholic mother having seizures and like weeping into her Labrador when her boyfriend broke up with her right afterwards. She's so right. And that's something I really appreciate because it kind of makes it feel worth it. I had that thought across this, like my co-founder leaving in these last couple of weeks. I was like, this is so weird, but I feel so much gratitude to have experienced this much life. I love it. I can't express or articulate so well the feeling that you emit is so beautiful and the energy is amazing because it's a combination of passion, energy, and gratitude all at the same time. And it's rare to have that combination because usually it's not mutually exclusive, but generally people are so focused, so passionate about one thing. They generally don't have as much empathy and as much gratitude as you do. And yet somehow you combine both and it's very powerful, but you really have such a beautiful energy and light to you. Thanks. You were saying that I was like, it's probably just a survival mechanism because otherwise I'd actually go insane. You know, they say that about artists, by the way. There is a theory that the reason so many artists, famous artists in history struggled with mental illness is because we're so open to seeing everything that it is too much. There's no way to square it away and make sense of it unless you're deeply religious or something, you know, where you've got this construct you can cling to. I don't know. It might just be a survival mechanism for that. But like, it is true. I really do feel I'm not making it up. And that doesn't, to your point, that's not mutually exclusive with the fact that like, this shit is so hard. I would have kind of liked it to not happen to me. Also, fuck everything. Fuck my co-founder leaving, you know, like, ah, man, are you kidding? That makes my life so hard. But I also really do feel grateful for this entire experience, all the bad and the good. This perspective I'm reading at the moment, talking about that and talking about 
choosing the mindset you're going to choose. And hopefully it's a positive one. But I'm reading The Choice. Mm, Oh, wow. (laughs) Talk about the worst environment in this concentration camp for multiple years. And the idea is it's such a beautiful perspective. And yes, she's had many years to reflect on it, but I can't get over perspective in that way and gratitude. And to your point of having the bad, but then taking that and making it such a positive force. My goodness. There's nothing I can complain about after reading that book. Oh, I know. I know. Totally. (laughs) I was like, is this behind me? Right. I think it's somewhere on my bookshelf. (laughs) Amazing. All right. Very last question. What's next for Jessica Ryan? I am super excited. There's a bunch of stuff coming up, but here's the one that I'm most excited to share. There's a really incredible organization in New York, but they serve folks all over the world. It's called Maestra, and it supports the work of women and non-binary musicians in the theater specifically, but they really end up working across all of the intersections of music. This organization exists because 8% of all Broadway musicians are women and non-binary. Well, are women, really. Non-binary folks, forget it. I don't even know. It's like less than a percent of musicians. And it's been this way forever. And when you start thinking about composers on Broadway, there was sort of a golden moment in the 20s and 30s where there were like Dorothy Fields, a whole bunch of women. And then there was not one until the 70s and only a handful since then. So Maestra does a bunch of cool stuff. They invest in a lot of research and statistics and studies, data. They provide technical workshops to upskill women and non-binary musicians. They have affinity groups and programs for working musicians who are moms, because as we all know, that makes things really hard, even if you're not in the theater. LGBTQIA, all that good stuff. And three years ago, I was like super honored to be asked to help create a digital concert that celebrated their work and brought people together. It's called Amplify. And the incomparable Kate Baldwin, Broadway's treasure Kate Baldwin, directs the stage show, and I direct the broadcast. And so we have our fourth annual Maestra's Amplify coming up on March 27th. It'll be live from the Midnight Theater in person in New York City, but it'll also be a hybrid broadcast that invites Maestra members, supporters, and just people who want to see a live Broadway concert to come together on the internet and celebrate their work with us. I'm just really, really excited for that. How exciting. Well, thank you for sharing. How can people find out more about that? So you can go to maestromusic.org to get tickets. I believe they go on sale the 27th of this month. And you can also visit altogethernow.live. We'll have a link to it as well. The talent is insane. It's going to be so good. And I think this is a challenge that affects all of us. It's not so different from VC statistics, VCs or those who are funded by VCs. It's not particularly different than leadership in the theater, CEOs in Fortune 500 companies. It's all the same. So I think it's a really cool opportunity for all of us to come together and just actually celebrate the work all of us are doing in our own corners under the guise of great women and non-binary writers and performers from Broadway, because that's fun. (laughs) I love it. Well, March 27th, I have my calendar marked. I'll be in Vietnam, so I'll watch it virtually. (laughs) That's so cool. (laughs) And how do people find out more about you? Is it on Altogether's website? It is, but I'm pretty active on social media. So at Jessica Ryan NYLA is the best place to find me. And that's my handle across all of them, just every single one of them. So I love connecting with people on there. What a surprise. I tell stories pretty often. So and you'll always be able to see like what the work is that's going on as well. Perfect. Jess, thank you so much. I had a blast in this interview. Same. Thank you so much for the beautiful questions and the really interesting conversation. And I 
I'm looking forward to repaying you the favor sometime and making you come on our podcast. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. <laughs>